Okay, man. Talk Recorded live. Thank you, brother. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 28th, 2013. Tonight we will present Explaining to Seed Line, Part 11, Pragmatic Genesis. Tonight we're going to discuss the, um, the call of Abraham, the sacrifice of Isaac. I don't think we'll get much further than that. Following that, we will discuss Jacob and Esau and contrast them. Once again, I have Sword Brethren here with me. Hello. Hello, Brian. Brian. How are you doing? I'm all right. Yourself? How are you? Wonderful. Thank you. This is a um, it, it's a new headset, and it's the same exact model as the old one, but it's a lot more sensitive, and it, it's probably going to take me a while to get used to and get the settings adjusted. I apologize for that. Tonight's probably better than last night, I hope. How are we doing? I think things are going well. Do you have any um, any comments concerning the first 10 installments of this? I, I, I don't. Any lingering questions, any email exchanges, anything like that before we proceed? Well, there have been some clowns that have posited the idea that Noah had a UFO, correct? I mean, we don't need to name names, but where (laughs) where do these outlandish theories come from? Are these well-meaning white people or are these, you know, enemies that are here to distract, divert, and throw a wrench in the assembly? Well, well, yeah, that's... that's, um... That's one angle, enemies here to infiltrate, divert, and, and distract, and lead the sheep off in, into right. oblivion. That, that's that, one angle. No one in the um, Byzantine-era church or the Roman-era church or the medieval-era church ever even toyed with such theories, right? These are all modern, new-age ideas. Well, well, Ryan, the Bible, the Bible does not support any such theories. That there was a clown named Noah Fredericks. I forget exactly where he was from. He he was from the Midwest. I do know that while I was in prison, he had actually sent me a full set of his tapes, and I couldn't receive them. They were rejected. I got a slip telling me that they were rejected in the mail. I had never heard from the guy, but he died a couple of years later, and, and before I before I came on the scene here. The, um, the idea is popular in, in some extremist pockets of Christian identity that Noah and his ark were really a spaceship and, and brought DNA here of, of every animal and, and rebuilt the society from some other planet on this planet. It's absolutely nuts. Christian identity doesn't need anything like that. Christian identity, identity Christians and all Christians should just stick to the scripture. Stick to the Bible we have. Too many clowns don't think that the Bible we have is good enough and they want to go write their own Bible. I I mean, that clown that thinks he has truth from God, he, he wants to write his own Bible in many aspects. It, it would serve us. It would serve our God much better if we just ignored those turkeys. 
they're a dime a dozen. All right. Yeah, I, I think we've um, satisfactorily demonstrated there could not have been a global worldwide flood. Well, well I mean, the Bible demonstrates that. I, I wouldn't. I, I don't need to rely on all the sophistic arguments of men. I mean, I could talk about the science if people wanted to talk about it. That's not really the purpose of this series of, of programs. This series is to um, expound true seed line doctrine, but. Genesis chapter 15 is all I need. The, the survival of the Kenites and the Rephaim is all we need to show that the flood, while it may have been a catastrophe and an event of a grand scale, it did, it did not encompass the entire globe. It could not have encompassed the entire globe. And the existence of these people in Genesis chapter 15 should be sufficient to demonstrate that. Yeah, Yahweh destroyed the children of Adam for mixing with the fallen angels who created, due to that mixing, created the Rephaim or the giants. Why would Yahweh instruct Noah to put Rephaim on the ark to continue the behavior which he what was punishing the children of Adam for engaging in. Right, that'd be like telling Lot to bring the men of Sodom along with him before he flees the town. Right, it, it's absolutely absurd, it's unbiblical. We have Rephaim and Kenites in Genesis chapter 15. That's all we need to prove to any rational thinking Christian that the, 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 the flood of Noah was not global. What else do we need? And, and those Rephaim are still around as many witnesses throughout Scripture to their existence in, in, in the books of Samuel, the book of Chronicles, the, the books of Judges and Joshua, where it talks about Og the king of Bashan being of the remnant of the giants. That, that's all we need. That, that's common sense. So we have at least three witnesses to the existence of the, of the giants, the Genesis 6 giants, after the flood. So we need the flood didn't cover the whole planet. The scripture is its best witnesses. The next issues to be discussed in this pragmatic Genesis series are the call of Abraham, the birth and sacrifice of Isaac, and the significance of the lives of Jacob and Esau. This will probably also take a couple of installments if we want to treat these topics sufficiently. There are a lot of things which, in a series like this, even though this is not meant to be an entire Genesis commentary by any means, I mean, but we'd still be on Genesis chapter 6 if that were the case, a lot of things cannot be glossed over and even if they seem to be fundamental. And because they are indeed fundamental, many identity Christians take them for granted, and when the time comes that they should expound upon them, their significance is often forgotten. The importance of the concerns regarding race and racial purity 
in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob cannot be diminished. And these foundational concepts cannot be lost when we interpret the New Testament scriptures, especially since those scriptures also refer to these same things. The call of Abraham. Much of this was taken from um, from notes that I that, that I had used in my Amos Part Seven presentation, when Yahweh told the children of Israel, "You only have I known of all the families of the earth, and my endeavor was to define what was meant by that phrase, all the families of the earth." Would you like to read Genesis twelve one through three? I mean. All right. Now Yahweh had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And, and that's phrase. Well, I think people called identity pastors use that phrase to try to universalize Christianity. Right. Well, they, the Dominion types, the Dominionists, they claim that by saying all the families of the earth shall be blessed, they're saying that we've 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 been a blessing to all the non-white races with our technology. But who's to say they're families of the earth? Well, well, right. Are they the part Bible. of the what's that term? The oikumene. Are they part of that? Right. The oikumene, the the, um, the Adamic world. The Bible defines the phrase "all the families of the earth," and and it's awfully disgraceful that these people would want to take. Genesis 12.3, and disconnect that from what was immediately prior to that presented in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, where all the families of the earth were listed. They were illustrated. And the other races are not there. Not originally, anyway. And now any of those people who are no longer white Adamic descendants from Noah, they aren't other races. They're bastards. And, and we presented some of that um, some of that as God's will, which we saw in the prophecies where, where he said that he gave up Egypt and, and Cush and Sheba for the sake of the children of Israel. We understand being familiar with the Septuagint chronology and, and the issues of that chronology, and once you're familiar with archaeology and history, that there was a 1,300-year gap between the flood of Noah and the call of Abraham. But the Bible isn't really concerned with those years. It only has the, the, the account of Noah's descendants and tells us very plainly that all the families of the earth all the families which the Bible is concerned with descended from them, and that they are of the families of the earth. Nobody can add to that. Nobody can say, well, what about these Chinamen over here? Let's stick them in this list. 
if God and his word didn't include them in his list, in, in this list, the phrase all the families of the earth can only refer to all of the white Genesis 10 families of the Adamic Lacumene, and that's the biblical context provided by Genesis in chapters 5, 10, and 11. It's also the way that the phrase was understood in both Deuteronomy 32a and by Paul in Acts chapter 17. Genesis 5.1 says, this is the book of the generations. And that word may be translated race. This is the book of the generations of Adam in the day that God created man in the likeness of God. He made him. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. The rest of the Bible is built upon this book of the race of Adam. The nations of the Old Testament can never be understood to be outside of the scope of Genesis chapter 10, where it says in Genesis 10.32, after listing all the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and I hope we illustrated it here two programs ago in, in Pragmatic Genesis Part 9, I think it was, that all of those peoples, well, for the most part, can be identified in ancient history, and they were all white nations. Genesis 10.32 says, these are the families of Noah after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. So wherever you see the phrase, the nations, in the Old Testament, you can only understand that to be in the context of Genesis 10.32, because right there, in the Word of God, it defines what and who the nations are. I don't see how that could be so difficult that people would insist on adding alien races which are not in that list. How could they do that? They're adding to the Word of God. They're making a lie. Any comments? Well, they must have an agenda. That's why they want to add to it and make a lie. Well, well, the Catholic Church really started that garbage, and it was they who made up the first the, the first stories, as far as I know, about the the, um, the Hamites being one race and the Japhethites being another race and the Shemites being a third race. And many other denominational Christians have followed that pattern, and it fails. It fails terribly as soon as you realize who the Philistines are, who, who the Medes are, and who the Assyrians or the Persians are, or, or any of the major tribes from any of those three groups, which can demonstrably be shown in history to have been white. So it, it doesn't take a whole lot of historical knowledge to see that, but it's absolutely true. Genesis chapter 11, which is basically a, complete, a more complete telling of the story 
which we see ending Genesis chapter 10.32, and it recapitulates the event where the nations are divided in greater detail. It's one of the um, examples of recapitulation we use to show the recapitulation of Genesis 126 and 127 with Genesis 2.7. Genesis 11, and I'm going to read verses 1, 8, and 9, Question, though, in Genesis 11, are we ever explicitly told how the earth came to be of one language and one speech? Well, if you have three children, and they have children, and you're all living in one place, even when you go to 50,000 children, you're going to be of one language and one speech, right? Right, so this is all the... This is still referring simply to the world as in our people. It's not referring to Hottentots in the Congo. These are the descendants of Noah. Right. That's okay. all it's dealing with. There are no Hottentots, no Hutus, no Tutsis, no Chinamen, no Koreans, no Latin American squat monsters. None of those people here. There are no Eskimos. They're not here. All these people are demonstrably white. They all descended from the same couple, Noah and his wife, who were perfect in their descent. They were perfect in, in Yahweh's creation of kind after kind, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. We can't imagine that they were race mixers when the language in Genesis chapter 6 insists that they were not. And it makes that insistence very clearly. And the whole earth, meaning the whole land of Shinar, because that's where this occurred, and the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And to skip to verse 8, so Yahweh scattered them abroad from there upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore the name of it is called Babel because Yahweh did there confound confound the language of all the earth, meaning of all the people of that land. And from thence did Yahweh scatter them abroad upon all the face of the earth. Genesis 10 had summarized that and said, these are the families of the sons of Noah after their generations in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. They are all the families of the earth. They are the nations. And that sets up Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham and the statement that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. We can't extend this beyond these Genesis 10 and 11 people. It can't be done. It can't be done with any honesty, none whatsoever. Now, I've heard certain universalist Christian identity pastors, well, so-called pastors, claim that, and, and, and one in particular actually said this to a Mexican, that if he blessed Israel, that he would be blessed, but Mexicans aren't included in Genesis chapter 12. And the blessings of bastards, well, well, they're never going to do us any good. 
how could we be blessed by bastards? That they're totally contrary to Yahweh's law, and they're never to enter the congregation. So, so this statement in Genesis 12.3 has to be limited to the families, all the nations, all the families of the sons of Noah in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. It's absolutely absurd to countenance the idea that other races, that aliens, could possibly be included in this context. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 is a reference to this same event because this only happened once when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of Adam. Right there, we have a definition. The nations are the sons of Adam. They're not Hutus and Tutsis and, and, and other squat monsters and beasts. They're the sons of the Adams. That's who the nations are. He set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel, for Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, the lot of his inheritance. How could that be extended beyond the Adamic race? How could the term the nations so succinctly defined there as the sons of Adam, how could that term ever be taken to apply to non-Adamic creatures. Well, you'd have to be a universalist liar with an agenda or an idiot to want to extend that. When, when you go to Ezekiel and see the nations or Jeremiah and see the nations and, and posi positive promises to those nations... In spite of their condition, you can't expect that to mean anybody else. You, you can't. When Christ said, preach the gospel to all the nations, you can't extend that beyond this. You can't do it. Acts chapter 17. Verses 26 and 28. Paul was addressing the Athenians who were Japhethites. And he said, and is made of one, the word blood really isn't in the manuscripts, all nations have been to dwell upon the face of the earth. And is determined the times beforehand, before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek Yahweh if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. And Paul is talking to Japhethites of the, of, of the branch of Javan, and they're listed in Genesis chapter 10, but he never talks to them about anything concerning Christ, because Christ and redemption and the need for obedience to him, that those things really don't affect the Athenian Japhethites. And, and we'll get that into that. We'll get into that soon. 
In Acts chapter 14, Paul explains that Yahweh had left all of the other Adamic Genesis 10 nations. He had left them on the periphery where he expresses astonishment over the idolatry of the non-Israelite Lycaonians, that these are a people who had descended from ostensibly from the Phrygians and Lydians and dwelt in central Anatolia at the time of Paul's ministry and, and for several centuries before that. They were Adamic people, but they were not Israelites. And he said, but when, when the Lycaonians imagined that Paul and Barnabas were gods, Paul's response was, Sir, why do you, sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men, not gods, of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God who made heaven and earth and all the sea and, and the sea and all the things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations, meaning those Genesis 10 nations, to walk in their own ways. <clears throat> Nevertheless, he left himself not without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So, so he supplies our sustenance, even though he lets us go our own ways. He had chosen Abraham, and we'll get into this more deeply as this program proceeds, out from all of these other Adamic Genesis 10 nations and let all of those other Adamic Genesis 10 nations go their way. That is what Paul is explaining in Acts chapter 14. The children of Adam, who is the son of God, are the offspring of God, Luke 3.34. They all are. Genesis chapter 5 tells us that this is the book of the generations of Adam, and all the races which are not Adam are not even under consideration at the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. All of the descendants of Adam through Noah were originally white people, and that can indeed be established in history. Deuteronomy 32.8 tells us not that Israel was a people elected by Yahweh out of all the races on the planet. The non-Adamic races were never contenders or possible candidates for such a position in the first place. Israel was elected by Yahweh God out of all of the Adamic families of Genesis chapters 10 and 11. It is to these people, however, and nobody else, that Yahweh God refers where he tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. That's only a promise made concerning to those other Genesis 10 nations. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the scope of this, of, of, of this call of Abraham. That's the scope of the promises 
that are subsequent to that call, we can't extend it beyond these Adamic white people by any means. We explained last week that the wonder of the promise of Abraham fulfilled by the time of Christ was that his seed would indeed become many nations and also inherit the nations. That promise was fully realized and we can perceive it once we perceive that the white nations of the old world, the pre-Christian world, were all, and I'm talking about Persia, Egypt, Assyria, all of the Japhethite nations of Europe, they were all under the control of dispersed Israelite tribes by the time of Christ. Right, so this has been fulfilled in antiquity. This isn't just some modern British-Israelite thing where they claim that Ephraim is the captain of many nations. Well, well you know... The, the fulfillment of the tribes to become many nations and, and, and unique and individual nations, that was fulfilled in antiquity. It's still, to a great extent, true today, but it, it, Abraham inherited the Oikumene before the time of Christ. And, and that came true in the Dorian Greeks, the Macedonian Greeks, the Romans, the Phoenicians who, who controlled Western Europe, and the Scythian Israelites of, of the Assyrian dispersions who, who became the Germanic peoples and the Parthians. And this, all, this was all fulfilled 2,000 years ago. British Israel, yet you know, the white nations of Northern Europe, as we know them in modern times, they're only a remnant of Israel. Because the white world at the time of Christ was a lot bigger, and we didn't have the, the incursions of the Mohammedans, the Arabs, the Turks, the Mongols, and, and, and they've all condensed the white world from the time of Christ. North Africa was all white at the time of Christ. Not anymore. The, the, um, the, the Eurasia and, and what we know as the Near East, Iran, Iraq, all the way to India, that was all white at the time of Christ. I mean, that there were Kenites and Canaanites mixed among them, but it was all white and it was in control of, of the white tribes by the time of Christ. And now those people aren't white any longer, or at least most of them. So that, that's the, the white world has shrunk. I mean, we we expanded to other continents such as North America and Australia, but you know there were probably white Phoenicians in North America who were wiped out a thousand years ago, or perhaps longer. So, so our presence here isn't really new. There were probably white Phoenicians in, in South America 2,000, 3,000 years ago that, that had been wiped out, murdered, destroyed. There's, there's plenty of archaeological evidence of that. The white world shrunk drastically until the, um, the time of European expansion, which picked up again after the 14th century. So... 
that this promise to Abraham was indeed fulfilled in antiquity. Well, you know, Before think we... about what, what our race has lost in the last several thousand years, as you were saying, all of northern Africa, and then, you know, we could go from modern-day Morocco all the way east into the, what we call India today, and up into, you know, the Russian steppes, Central Asia, all those Estans, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, weren't those historically white lands? Well, well, white people certainly certainly inhabited them in large numbers. That is, I don't have any records of non-whites inhabiting them uh, until, um, the, I mean, the medieval period in that area is very poorly recorded, but until the, the time of the Mongol invasions and, and the, um, the, the, the Khazar Turkic Empire, which I see as an earlier Mongol, inv- Mongol invasion, the time of Turks. But um, until that time, yeah, they were predominantly white. Sogdiana, Bactriana, which border on Tibet, they were, they were certainly white. The, um, the, the river valleys of modern-day Kazakhstan, the Oxus River, the Jakarta River, those river basins, they were the home of the Masagene in, in 400 B.C., 300 B.C. So, yeah, they were, they were primarily inhabited by whites. Right, some, so. of the, some of the Scythian graves are also inhabited and sometimes co-inhabited by people of Mongol character, and, and there was definitely some mixing in, in Asia, but they were primarily white. Right, so in terms of our ancestral lands in Europe, Central Asia, and Africa, we've lost greater than half of the lands that our ancestors were inhabiting several thousand years ago. Right, and and that's actually prophesied in books such as Daniel, in Daniel chapter 8, and in the Revelation, the flood of the the flood from the mouth of the serpent, which would chase after the woman, the destruction of a third of the stars of heaven. That there's a lot of prophecies that, that foretell that. So the white world, you know, it it started to grow again with, with the new wave of European colonization overseas from the 15th century. But it had shrunk drastically with the fall of Rome and, and the Arab and, and Turkic and Mongol invasions. There's no doubt. So we can't, if we embrace the invaders, we are basically embracing the flood that comes from the serpent's mouth, as it's described in Revelation chapter 12. Should we do that? Should we embrace the enemies of our God? Well, how could we? We're, we're going, before this series ends, we're going to get into some of the curses on some of the ancient nations. Because once you realize that they were white nations, and once you see in the prophets the way those nations were cursed by God, that they were going to be punished for how they acted towards the children of Israel. Well, well, 
then you'll understand that the results of the people living there today, those people are the results of those curses by God. Those people are cursed people. We should not embrace modern Egyptians. Modern Egyptians are the result of a curse that Yahweh our God placed on the white Egyptians nearly 3,000 years ago. So if you want to embrace modern Egyptians, you're embracing a people accursed by God. It's spelled right out, right in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Why don't Christians get that? You, you know, in Zechariah, one of, the, one of the curses against the Philistines was that a bastard would live in Ashdod. And today we have all kinds of identity Christians who have empathy towards these Palestinians that are basically the bastards that are a result of the curse of God upon those ancient white people who are no longer white. Why are they no longer white? Because Yahweh said that bastards would live there. So we're going to have empathy for the accursed bastards? That's incredibly short-sighted, it's incredibly ignorant of the scripture. I, I don't, it's just unbelievable to me that any Christians at all, but especially identity Christians who claim to know better, would still buy that universalist leaven. That's what it is. It's leaven. It's just another deception. Oh, they're not Jews, so they're not bad. Well, well, yeah, they are. They're the results of Yahweh's curses on the Egyptians. They're the results of Yahweh's curses on the Philistines. They're the results of Yahweh's curses on the Assyrians. Over and over again. It's all throughout the Bible. A devil will dwell in Babylon. Well, well, the devils are those Arab bastards that are living there today. Why don't people see that? Uh, I don't know. It, it amazes me. Well, that how they much can't put two and two together? How much sectarian violence and civil war was there in ancient Babylon compared to what's going on there today? Well, well, we discussed last week, you know, it was only brief, but the Canaanites, by the time of Abraham, there's something peculiar going on throughout Mesopotamia and, and the Near East because the Hittite Empire is on the rise. The Amorites got their claws on Babylonia and, and basically filled the vacuum left with the fall of, of, of the... Um, the third dynasty of Ur at Sumer, I think it was, the Kassites, who were ostensibly white and, and possibly a branch of the Persians, had, had swept into to, um, to Ur and taken over, left filled the vacuum, left with the fall of the, the Sumerians, but they didn't last, and, and they were eventually overcome by the, um, the, the Hittites, 
and the Amorites. What we have with the time of the fall of, Ab- uh, of the call of Abraham is we have all of the Canaanite nations or tribes coming to prominence in the Near East and in Mesopotamia. That, that's what it appears to be to, to, um, to me. That's the way I could quantify it on biblical terms. Right, and this is the now, fulfillment now, of prophecy then, right? Basically the displacement of our people and the rise of their people. Well, well, that's what it seems to me. The Canaanites were far more expansive than simply the land of Palestine. The, the Mesopotamian Empire of ancient Sumer had been overtaken by Amorites. The Mitanni kingdom had a large population of Hurrians, or Horites, as they're called in the Bible. And, and they're the same Canaanites that the children of Esau, that Esau had mar- intermarried into. The Hittites dwelt in um, northern Syria over towards Anatolia, and that's not far west of the ancestral homeland of Abraham. And they were on their way to becoming a large empire, which would subject all of Anatolia and much of Syria and the land of Canaan for about 400 years, maybe a little longer. They would even subject the Mitanni kingdom, which encompassed the ancient land of Padanaram and, and Abraham's ancestral homeland, the ancient land of Arthaxad, if I had to place it on a map. The Adamic world was a pretty screwed up place by the time of Abraham. Now we have the nations of Canaan listed in Genesis chapters 15, verses 18 through 21. Now Canaan himself, Canaan, even though he was an inbred, according to scripture, he would have to be a product of the union of Ham and his mother, because the, the, the scripture says, he who has slept with his father's wife uncovered his father's nakedness. That, the, the Bible makes that definition for us. So, so that would be the only Logical reason to understand why Canaan was cursed and not necessarily Ham's other sons. So Canaan's cursed. Canaan himself was white. We're not told he, who he married, but would you want, if, if you were a tight-knit family in those first few generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, would you want your son or your daughter marrying Canaan, or one of his daughters? No, no way. So we can guess who Canaan married, but we can't say with any certainty. Now, the, um, the tribes of Canaan are listed in Genesis chapters 15, 18 through 21, and the first thing that stands out is the presence of the Kenites and the Rephaim. So the Kenites and the Rephaim are dwelling among the tribes of Canaan probably for quite a long time. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's all 1,200 years. People are mobile. People move. The Kenites are smiths and musicians and, and 
merchants and lawyers that that they that that's very evident in scripture. So they're mobile and they probably infiltrated a lot of these places. But the Bible puts them specifically among the tribes of Canaan. And even though when the tribes of Canaan are listed again in the book of, of, of Joshua, I believe it is, or perhaps Judges, even though the Kenites aren't mentioned explicitly in that passage, it's still very clear from the scriptural record in the subsequent books that the Kenites are always there and that the Rephaim are also still there. So the Kenites and the Rephaim are along with the tribes of Canaan in Genesis chapter 15, and we know that they're accursed, and, and the giants that resulted from, from the unseemly unions made with the, um, the children of Adam in Genesis chapter 6, and the Kenites are the descendants of Cain. They're listed in Genesis chapter 4. They survived the flood. Here they are in the land of Canaan along with people that could not be identified at all from Scripture, among whom are the Kenazites, the Cadmonites, and, and, and um, the Perizzites. So it seems to me that there are some sort of non-Adamic races here who, while, while there's a lot of years here, and they may have been offshoots of some Adamic nation, or some other Canaanite peoples who had developed their own identity, they may also have been other so-called pre-Adamic people who, who simply are other branches on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We don't know. We won't have those answers. Not, not until um, it's all said and done, I, I pray, but we won't have those answers in this life. So there are people here that cannot be identified. Then there are other people that can be identified, and they can be identified with all of the enemies of God. So that's who the tribes of Canaan are, and they're all evidently mingling with one another. And that's also obvious from their own attitudes throughout the scriptural record. That's what Abraham is being sent into. It's, it can only be conjectured as to why, but for some reason, Yahweh wanted him out of Haran and sent him to the land of Canaan. Now, there are, at this time, historically, we know that Egypt has a great influence over the land of Canaan, the Egyptian empire, and a lot of secure cities on the coast actually belong to the Egyptians, but these people, these Canaanite peoples, are all accursed. And Abraham is being sent into the middle of them. Haran is about to be, um, it's about to be consumed by the Hittite Empire, and, and it seems evident that there was a lot of mixing with the Hurrians, the Horites, which are Canaanite tribes, in northern Syria, where Haran was as well. So Yahweh wanted Abraham out of Haran and sent him to Canaan. These Canaanite tribes occupied a much wider area, and that's absolutely evident from ancient inscriptions, ancient histories, and from the Bible itself, 
than simply the land, the portion of Palestine which was later divided amongst the 12 tribes. The Canaanites had also encompassed a much wider world. Do you have any statements? Now, you said that the Canaanites were accursed. You're saying that they're accursed instead of cursed? I mean, how do you differentiate that? That they're accursed people. Accursed. Right. That's, uh, I'm using accursed as a, as a um, transitive verb. All right. Genesis 26, verses 3 to 6. Well, maybe I should first read. Yeah. Sojourn in this land, and I, meaning Yahweh, will be with thee, meaning Abraham, and will bless thee. For unto thee and unto thy seed will I give all these countries, and I will perform the oath which I swear unto Abraham. I'm sorry, this is a promise made to Isaac. Unto Abraham thy father, and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven, and will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. It's evident in Scripture that by the time of Abraham, we have one man chosen out of the entire Adamic race because all these other nations went off into idolatry. Scripture even tells us that Abraham's own family had worshipped the gods of other nations, had been engaged in idolatry. Abraham alone was left. He's it. We have, in Genesis chapter 11, from Genesis chapter 1, the history of the entire Adamic race. After Genesis chapter 12, we only have the promises made to one man and the history of his family which resulted from that one man being faithful to God. He may have been the only man left who was faithful to God. And his household followed him, but they didn't have a choice. Ancient households followed the master of the house. Genesis 35, 9, 13 I'm sorry, Genesis 35, 9 through 13. And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Padanaram and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be my name. And he called his name Israel. And God said unto him, I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and the company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee I will give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give this land. And God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So we see the promises being carried down from Abraham to Isaac 
to Jacob, and, and that's rather elementary. We'll talk more next week, I pray, about Isaac and, and Jacob and Esau and why those, transmi- those promises were transmitted to Jacob rather than to Esau, of course. The, um, the promise to Abraham is real, and it was fulfilled by the time of Christ, and the Apostle Paul knew it. And I'm going to offer a long quote from Romans chapter 4, which proves that Paul was teaching the fulfillment of this promise. This should be Christianity 101, it's very striking that um well well that, that Paul understood the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, but it's unmistakable from Romans chapter four that he indeed did. He could only have understood it through the revelation of Scripture in concert with his study of the classical histories which were available to him. And, and the fact that he that, that he did read those classical histories is proven over and over again in his writing because he quotes them, because he patterns his examples after examples found in classical histories, because he makes allusions to things that are found in Homer and Epimenides and, and, and many other, Euripides and many other classical writers. What would you do? You want to read this section from from my notes? All right. Where do we leave off? Romans chapter four. Romans chapter be- four. Skipping most of the arguments concerning the law and focusing solely on the promises concerning Abraham's offspring. Right. Now, what I have I- notes. I have some notes in brackets that are interspersed. So you might. All right. <laughs> now that we may see. Now that we may say that our forefather Abraham has found concerning the flesh. Indeed, what do the writings say? That Abraham trusted Yahweh, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. James 2.23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the... Excuse me. And he was called the friend of God. Isaiah 41.8, But thou, Israel, art my servant... Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir of the society, but through righteousness of faith. I've often wondered, if I may as an aside, why would God tell Abraham to sacrifice Isaac if human sacrifice is explicitly condemned and forbidden? Well, well, we're going to get into that at, at the end of this presentation. All right. So I'll just hold on to that for now then. Please. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all, just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you. Before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing, 
who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. And he, not being weak in the faith, nor having considered his own body by this time being dead, being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of the womb of Sarah, but at the promise of Yahweh he did not doubt in disbelief. Rather, he was strengthened in faith, giving honor to Yahweh, and having full satisfaction that what he had promised he is also capable of doing. For that reason also it was accounted to him for righteousness. Moreover, it was not written regarding him only that it was accounted to him, but also regarding us to whom it is destined to be accounted to those who believe in him who raised Yeshua, our prince from death, who was handed over for reasons of our transgressions and was raised for reason of our acquittal. Now, now that's the Christian New Testament. That word forefather in verse 1 of chapter 4 is forefather in all of the ancient manuscripts. The King James Version only has father there. It does matter because forefather it is much more of a genetic term, and that's the point Paul is trying to make. Paul believes that the promise to Abraham came true, that Abraham's seed became many nations. Paul, in his ministry, understood when he went to Athens that the Ionian Greeks were not one of those nations. He understood in Acts chapter 14 when he spoke to the Lycaonians that the Lycaonians were not one of those nations. If we examine the classical histories and compare them to the Genesis 10 table of nations, we too would understand that. But Paul did understand that the Romans indeed were one of those nations. That's exactly what he's telling them here, that they are a part of this fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. This is the faith of Abraham, that Abraham believed Yahweh when Yahweh told him that his offspring would become many nations and inherit the world. For that reason that Abraham believed that promise was he called a friend of God. Those nations would inherit the world and those nations would become the chief nations, the inheritors of the Adamic society. That happened by the time of Christ and Paul knew it. If we, if we claim to be of the faith of Abraham and we deny this simple biblical truth, then just like the universalists, the Jews and the Muslims, we too would be liars. All those people are liars. They do not understand, nor do they believe these simple, these rather simple concepts of scripture, which are laying right there in front of our faces. It was where Paul says in, in Romans 4.24, but also regarding us, to whom it is destined to be accounted, 
Yeah, you know, all through Romans, there's proof of Paul's teaching them what we would call Christian identity. In Romans chapter 1, he says that they had the proof of God, turned it into a lie. In Romans chapter 2, he tells them that they had the works of the law written, they had the law, the evidence of the law written in their hearts, which is a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31 concerning the children of Israel. It's all through Romans that he believed that they were descendants of, of Abraham. Here in Romans chapter 4, it's spelled out. Abraham believed Yahweh. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of Yahweh came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. And thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Yahweh God, what will thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. He had no children at this time. And lo, one born in my house is mine heir. In other words, this Eleazar, his servant. And behold, the word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. From where does seed come from? Out of the bowels. And he believed in Yahweh and he accounted it to him for righteousness. If we don't believe that Christianity and the nations who were to receive the gospel, that those nations were these nations of this promise to Abraham, then we can't possibly be righteous. We can't possibly be of the faith of Abraham. We don't belong. Eleazar, a man of Damascus, must have been a man of Aram, he must have been a, 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 a Shemite. He must have been of the stock of Abraham's fathers. Yet even though he must have been of the same Shemitic race, Eleazar was not qualified to be Abraham's heir in the eyes of God. If the plan of God was along such strict genetic lines at this time in Genesis chapter 15, it remains so today. God does not change. Where Abraham's seed are those whom these things would fall to, then the example of Eleazar stands as a signal witness against the ideas of universalism and replacement theology. There is no replacing the promise that Abraham's heirs would be from Abraham's loins.
That's what Abraham believed, and he was justified for it. We should be of the faith of Abraham. Abraham believed, Abraham was justified because he believed Yahweh that his seed would become many nations and inherit the oikumene. 2,000 years later, Paul is telling the Romans that they were among those nations. And an examination of the Bible and history shows that they were. However, it is absolutely ridiculous to believe that any other races forever outside of the Adamic Oikumene who had no relation to Adam or Noah or Abraham could ever possibly be, be made into Abraham's seed. This is like a Canaanite bait and switch. God told Abraham that his seed would become many nations. The Catholic Church has taught, and all the universalist sects have taught that many nations somehow become Abraham's seed. That's the exact opposite from the statement of God. Paul was teaching Christian identity as many other statements in the epistle to Romans demonstrate. He was not teaching universalism. He was teaching exactly along the same lines that the Old Testament prophecies were, were predicting. Paul was teaching the fulfillment of those prophecies, and it was a proper fulfillment. Do you have any comments? Well, just a question about Abraham, but you said we'd get into that shortly. Well, well, right. That Yahweh had only known Israel of all the families of the earth. He let all those other Genesis 10 families go their own way. Christ stated that he came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It can be established that Paul of Tarsus understood this. And he used the Greek word, oikonomia, which is management. In Greek, oikonomia means the management of a household or a so, family. Well, how do you in address the, ministry. the evangelicals then who want to claim that everyone can be a, anyone can be a spiritual Israelite, and he came for them too? Well, well, yeah, but Yahweh defined the source of Abraham's seed in the promise and, and, and the instructions which he had for Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, right, that, so. his, that his heir would come out of his own bowels. So it's a simple matter. Either you're of Abraham or you're not. Well, well right. You're, you're either of Abraham through Jacob or you're not. And if you're not, you don't belong here. You don't belong in this promise. You don't belong a Christian. You can't be a Christian. You can't have the faith of Abraham because you can't be included. Paul used this term oikonomia, which means the management of a household or family in order to describe his ministry. He did it in Ephesians chapter 3, in Colossians chapter 1, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and all the denominational translations gloss it over. They ignore the literal meaning of the word. 
they try to translate it as things like dispensation or stewardship. Yeah, an oikonomist could be a steward in the sense that he runs a household or a family. That's what that word means. You can't take it and disconnect it from its primary meaning and apply it some other way because you want to change the context. You can't do that. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, as an example, and I'll read Ephesians 3, 9 as well. For this cause, I, Paul, captive of Christ Yahshua, on behalf of you of the nations. If indeed you have heard of the management of the family, of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you. And he goes on to say in Ephesians 3, 9, and to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery, which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, by whom all things are being established. And that household of the mystery is simply a reference to the fact that all of these nations were driven out of Palestine, migrated into Europe, settled elsewhere, and forgot who they were. Israel was driven out of Palestine because of their paganism. When you want to seek Israel outside of Palestine, don't go looking for Jews. You won't find Jews. You'll find pagans. When Paul talks to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, after telling them that their fathers were in the exodus with Moses, he says, Behold, Israel according to the flesh, meaning true Israel, the things which the nations, not the Gentiles, the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And he calls those people Israel according to the flesh. So Paul knew what he was talking about, and he knew the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in the nations of Europe, which happened to be white nations. One other question that this discourse might raise, since it relates to the promises promise of Genesis 12.3 is just how all of the other nations can be blessed in Abraham's seed. And Paul answers this indirectly in Romans chapter 5. First, we must be mindful that the first promise of restoration to eternal life in the Bible is found in Genesis 3.22, right after the fall, where it's written, and Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And Yahshua Christ is the tree of life. So we see that promise in Genesis 3, long before the call of Abraham. Therefore, I'm sorry. Okay, therefore, 
Yahweh God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and the flaming sword which turned every way to keep, not to prevent, as a lot of clowns would posit, to keep the way of the tree of life. In other words, so that the Adamic man would indeed be able to find his way back to Yahweh, his God, and the tree of life. The flaming sword does not prevent Adamic man from attaining the tree of life. It's to make sure that he keeps that way. Christ, the Son, and, and I believe this is why the, um, the, the flaming sword was placed on the east of the garden. Christ, the Son, is the light of the world. The east is where the sun rises. He is also the way, and he is the tree of life. Comments, questions? No. So, <laughs> this household of mystery concealed from the ages by Yahweh, is this one of those things that's been kept secret from the foundation of the world then? Well, well, yeah, you know, all of these nations, the Romans, they all that they all had their that they had their history to an extent. The the Romans understood that they came from Troy, but they had a whole bunch of wacky pagan theories and all of the Greeks thought that they came down from the gods from heaven and 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 that they had a bunch of Vain genealogies, as Paul called them, and you can see examples of them in the Greek poets, such as Hesiod especially, but um, they lost the knowledge of their own origins. The, the Danans knew they came from Egypt. They didn't remember that they were Israelites from Egypt. They just knew that they came from Egypt. Yet, you know, they, they, they basically forgot who they were, that blindness was a matter of prophecy. All right. That's the mystery concealed from the ages. How, how Abraham's seed became many nations, that's what the identity Christian endeavor is, is to reconstruct that history from the Bible, the classics, and archaeology. And we can. We can reconstruct a great deal of that. that that's one of my major endeavors at Christagenia. Even in these vain pagan genealogies and these ideas that they're descended from the gods, we're seeing some validation of Genesis 6, though, right? The, the ancients, the pagans, they at least had some conception that powerful supernatural beings were mating with mortals. Well, well, that's absolutely true. All of the Greek myths concerning the, the mating of gods and, and, and mortal women or the mating of female gods and mortal men, which we see not only in the Greek mythology, but also in much of the Akkadian and Sumerian literature, that is all a reflection of the truth 
of the Genesis account, a lot of these clowns that scoff at Christianity want to say that that disproves the Bible, and that's a lie. It proves the Bible, because once you understand that these people were scattered tribes from the same race, and that they, it's like playing telephone, right? You pass somebody a message, and 40 people later, as it keeps getting passed, it comes out quite different at the other end. Well, these myths were expounded on, embellished, um, changed, permutated in, in various places at various times, but they all have these common threads which represent a common memory. If those Greek myths and those Assyrian myths and those Sumerian myths did not exist, then I would wonder about the veracity of Scripture, why it's not corroborated in any of the memories of the other branches of our race. Indeed, it certainly is corroborated in the memories of the other branches of our race. And we see it in Germanic folklore. We see it in Greek. We see it in Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian. We even see it to some extent in Egyptian, even though in Egyptian a lot of the symbology is a lot different. But we still see a lot of Old Testament parallels, a lot of Genesis parallels in Egyptian mythology. And all of that together proves that the Bible has a core of truth. And, and that even though the Bible stories are, are very abbreviated, we know where our origin is and, and we know where our destiny is because of that, because we know our origin. It's that simple. Right. Those stories prove scripture. I think we've covered the call of Abraham. I, I hope we've covered it sufficiently for this for our purposes here, that we have this whole wider Genesis 10 Adamic world, which is basically being, I wouldn't say discarded, that there are many people who fit into and, and are used by Yahweh in later history from the other branches of our race. But for the most part, they're set, they're pushed to the periphery until Yahweh has a purpose for them. That purpose isn't always good. I mean, the Egyptians were used to chastise the children of Israel. The Assyrians were used to chastise the children of Israel. The, the Persians were, were used so that the children of Israel could find what, well, basically to a in, in a great extent, could find relief from the Assyrians. The, um, the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem, they were Chaldeans. They weren't, for the most part, they were not Canaanites. There may have been some Canaanites among them. They had a heavy use of mercenary armies. But, but for the most part, they were also Adamic people, the Chaldeans. So, so. Later on, yeah these other branches of our race to chastise us. Is it the fulfillment of prophecy then that the Persians, the Parthians, they, they fell to the Arab Islamic invasions and then 
basically the Byzantine Empire fell as well. I mean, why allow that to happen? That resulted in the annihilation of tens of millions of white people, didn't it? I'm sorry, hit me with that again. The early medieval fall of the Persian Parthian Empire to the Islamic Arab conquest, which you know gave rise to Iran as we know it today. You know, Iran is basically just a brown squat monster Muslim land. And then the destruction and collapse of the Byzantine Empire, is this in fulfillment of prophecy? I mean, I, I understand why, you know, so many nations were given up as a ransom to protect the, the wicked Israelites. So over time, you know, um, what, Egypt, Babylonia, Ethiopia, various nations were lost at one time or another. But why in the 7th century A.D. should Persia or, you know, Parthia be sacrificed? And then why over the next 500 years the Byzantine Empire, since at that point the Israelites had already been dispersed. Well, you have Daniel chapter 8, which foretells the rise of Mohammedism. The, the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 is not the same little horn of, of Daniel chapter 7. You have the war between the king of the north and the king of the south, which I believe represents the wars between the popes and the caliphates. You, you have Revelation chapter 9, Daniel 8 and Revelation 9 are both clear prophecies of the rise of Mohammedism and the destruction of much of Christianity because of that. And, and Daniel, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 9 takes that a great step further by prophesying the Turkic and Mongol invasions that were subsequent to that. That that's the word of God. That's the chastisement and, and part of the punishment of Israel. That is the flood from the serpent's mouth and and the fulfillment of several other prophecies. We're told in Revelation chapter nine that the uh, the chastisement at that time was because of the idolatry of men. Right, so. Go on. Well, I was wondering, could we say then that the Byzantines and the Sassanid Persians largely brought that on themselves then because they fought de decades, even, you know, ongoing hundreds of years of war between themselves, while the Arab Caliphate simply rose to prominence, gathered its strength, and then crushed the Sassanids and then took a huge amount of land from the Byzantines. So instead of uniting and fighting a real enemy, the Arabs, they were busy killing each other. Well, well yeah, that was, that, that was, look, look at the, um, the Normans is another example of that, that they went off on a crusade and, and instead of attacking the Turks, what they do? They sacked Constantinople. I thought that was mostly the Venetians that sacked Constantinople. Oh, the Normans sacked Constantinople in the 13th century. You're talking about the Fourth Crusade, right? 1204. You know, we had a... that There was a great Jewish infiltration into all those kingdoms. Jewish um, physicians, if I have to call them that, what were at the courts of the Byzantine emperors all throughout its history. What we, we had... The, the Jewish merchants of Venice what were steering the, the Italian princes around by the nose. The people like the de Medici's, the Borgias, well, well, they're not the the beginning of 
uh, of the Klein families of Italy, that the Jews had infiltrated many of the Italian principates and, and the papacy long before that. So, I mean, you always had the hand of, of the, the serpent in history, and why is that? The revelation tells us that it's the dragon which gives its power to the beast. We have different prophecies that, that are running in parallel. Yes, you have your thousand years where Satan is pushed out of um, the, the, the polity of Europe. There's no doubt. But you still had him in the back alleys and, and persuading princes and, and popes the war. That, that he, he, he wasn't ruling over us overtly, but there are other prophecies being fulfilled in conjunction with the 2,520 years of Israel's punishment. And the, the tyrannies that Israel was subject to because of that. So, so that, that's probably a discussion for a different program. I've already done um, a series of podcasts on that. It's called Christ Strike. It, it's my revelation series. So that's a recurrent theme then in the history of our people, a failure to fight the right enemies. Well, well of course it is. But, but, you know, most people subsided the, at the whims of their rulers, and, and we were ruled over by tyrants for 2,520 years. Now we think that we're ruling ourselves, and, and the end of us is worse than the beginning. The, the bottom line is that we're learning a very hard lesson. Only Yahweh can be our king. That, that's the lesson. That this is something that we subjected ourselves to in... 1,000 B.C., 1,200 B.C., whatever, when, when Saul became king over Israel, when the children of Israel demanded an earthly king, it was probably about 1050 to 1080 B.C. That's when we subjected ourselves to this. So, All right. European history and, and, and the history of our race is perfectly in tune with biblical prophecy, but it, it's a long study. The life and sacrifice of Isaac. I don't know how much we're going to get into this. It, it's already um, 9.40. Perhaps we should simply leave this for next week. And I, I hate to disappoint people, but maybe we should um, leave the story of Isaac for next week and, and pick up from there. All right. Okay. I want to thank everybody for listening. This is William Fink, Christagenia.org. Thank you, Sword Brethren, once again for joining me. We'll be here next week with the life and sacrifice of Isaac and the story of Jacob and Esau. I think that'll be a, um, a, a very good program. I, I, I believe. I'm looking forward to it anyway. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. I will be Friday with Acts chapter 25. All right. Yeah. Good night. See you next Saturday.